0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to the So We Speak podcast. For those of you who are watching us today for the first time, this is our first video podcast uh, in our first podcast of 2021. I'm here with Ben Williams, and most of you guys already know him. He's one of our writers at So We Speak. He uh, publishes regularly for us. He's been on the podcast before, and most of you know that name because he has published uh, a book recently, The Faith of John's Gospel, which is what we're going to talk about today. So, Ben, Thanks for coming on the podcast, first of all, but second of all, thank you for writing this awesome book.
1: Oh, glad to. Thanks for having me back on and uh, being supportive of uh, the work we do together. I'm excited for what So We Speak has in store in the future. Going ahead.
0: There's never been been a
1: more important time for worldview studies from a Christian point of view.
0: Oh, I totally agree. It's been a year, if we think about 2020, that's kind of our... our, uh, I would say it's our best year. It's definitely been our most prolific year at So We Speak. And I think it couldn't have come at a better time in, you know, the things that have gone on. And of course, one of the trends that we talked about and I noticed early in 2020 was just how much media consumption is going up and people are watching more, they're listening more, they're podcasting more. And so we want a lot of that content to be God glorifying. And we want it to be from a Christian worldview.
1: Yep. For sure. Crisis, uh, is kind of a testing ground for worldview and 2020 yeah. has just been this great thought experiment only in real life. Uh, oh so. yeah.
0: I mean, it really, th- those moments are, re- are what reveal what we trust in and what we believe. Yeah, and for sure, uh, you know, while most of us were binging uh, Tiger King on Netflix, and, obviously, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> watching, watching more TV than usual, you were writing a book during 2020, a pretty productive use of your time. I want to kick it off and just say how how did the idea for this book begin? Uh, what was it, you know, in its nascent form and and how did it progress throughout the year uh, to become the faith of John's gospel?
1: A uh, couple of interesting things. Uh, one, our our my own local church here in Ada, Oklahoma uh, was having to think about what church looks like in pandemic era setting. And one thing we decided we would give a try was to reboot our small groups program, thinking that um, groups of eight to 10 to 12 might be policy-wise safer uh, than some other things the church could do. So we thought even people that didn't feel comfortable being back in a big group could maybe do those. Um, So I was doing research on that. We had done something like that in the past that we called home teams. And um, they were more kind of permanent groups that just existed. And I wanted to use uh, the model of, of kind of on-again, off-again groups that worked in kind of trimester format. And um, the first time we did it, we kind of did an anything-goes approach. Anything you want to study for 12 or 13 weeks, you come up with a topic, go do a small group and do it. Yeah. And so that was fun. Uh, but as I had agreed to provide most of the content – I was writing, you know, like three sets of classes and recording three sets of video lectures to go with, you know, there was a lot going on that that fall. So I thought, uh, not again, next term, we're all going to do at least one term a year, church-wide, the same study for small groups. And I wanted it to be pretty basic. I wanted it to be um, a reintroduction to the Christian faith. And I thought, you know, I've kind of wanted to write something along those lines anyway, I should just do it. Um, as I, I think, you know, uh, my wife was diagnosed with a breast cancer uh, midway through 2020. And so this fall, uh, she was finishing up chemo and I was, you know, kind of being the the, the nurse for a while uh, and, yeah. and Mr. Mom and all those things. So I had a little extra time on my hand around the house. Um, where it was important for me to just be there, but not necessarily have a job to do. And so I'd bring things from the office to the house. Like a lot of us worked from home, I think, for a lot of last year. And on pretty days, I'd go sit out on the front porch and outline the ideas for this book. Um, I'm an outliner, so I start out before I write anything with, you know, here's 12 or 13 topics. Here's the way I want to break it down. Here's the passages I want to cover in each. And then you started working that. Uh, outline uh, throughout the fall.
0: You know, a a lot of books that come from people who are pastoring go through the reverse process in some ways. So, you know, you preach a sermon series where you've outlined and researched and you've given these messages and then you turn them into a book. You're kind of outlining and researching and writing and then going to teach this material. What's that process like as you're thinking about how you're going to teach this versus how you're going to write it?
1: you know, I've done it both ways. I mean, I have sermon series that I'd like to turn into a book at some point. Um, but this works for me too. The bad news is that right now, actually, as are this last two days ago, I taught my first small group using my own book. And, you know, discussions come up and you think, oh, I should have thrown that point in or oh, I should. <laughs> so you get lots of, I wish I had as, uh, you know? mm-hmm. but, but it's still it's, it's, it's a process and that works too. So I I enjoy the outlining and the clarity of thought. Cause sometimes when you, especially in a, a Bible class format, you get a lot of input from the students, which is great, but it might take you in a direction. You wouldn't have gone if you were sitting at a table by yourself. Right. So this is good just to kind of clear my head and say, here's Ben introducing the Christian faith, the best, you know, I know mm-hmm. how. And
0: well, and that's one of the unique parts of this book. I think one of the things that really grabbed my attention when you sent me the manuscript of the book was, it isn't just a book about john's gospel although if you read this book you're going to get a great overview and summation of john's gospel it's also an introduction into the basics of the faith and the way that you did that i thought was really unique and um, probably a little bit surprising if you think okay how would you just write a book about john's gospel you open up and the first thing you see is the apostles creed uh, laid out in the yeah. table of contents. How, how'd how you come up with the idea to organize a study of John through the lens of the Apostles Creed?
1: I don't know which idea came first. Maybe they were uh, it, traveling in parallel through my strange brain, but I, I knew I kind of wanted to cover a gospel, uh-huh. but I also wanted to do an introduction to the Christian faith. And in my mind, those ought to be the same thing. I mean, in principle, if if a summary of the Christian faith is true to the gospel, then I should be able to pick up a gospel and get pretty much most of that there somewhere addressed. Yeah. It may not be topically like, you know, looking through an epistle that says, and now we're going to talk about this, but it should at least somehow flow out of the the gospel text. So I've, I've long been enamored with the, the apostles creed, which may be funny for guys like you and me. Uh we, I assume your background like mine is not really heavily influenced by creedal uh, formulations in that sense. You know, we're not, no creed, but the Bible is kind of, you know, the, the motto I grew up with. Right, Um, And and there's good ground for that. There are some pretty lousy creeds out there, but the, the, the early creedal statements were think of it, you know, the second century, you got a largely illiterate culture. You have a church that has the Bible in its, most proto form, you know, I mean, it's, it's it maybe exist in churches, but no one's opening up a Gideon New Testament out of the hotel room. You know, it just doesn't exist in that way. Um, there's no you version. Uh, so it just doesn't happen. So how do you summarize for anybody what Christianity is about mm-hmm. now come forward to millennia. And while we're more literate than at any time in human history, we're more biblically illiterate than at any time since the medieval period. Um, yeah we think in the common culture, we think we know more about Christianity and in reality know very little. So yes. it's not people that, that that are just unacquainted. It's not like you're a Hindu who's never heard of Christianity, but you have a whole culture of people who think they know a caricature of mm-hmm. Christianity and we're kind of representing it for the first time. And in both of those contexts, six, uh, second century or 21st century, Having a, a 12 point creedal statement, here's the basics of what we're about, is kind of handy. And yeah. it turns out that same 12 point list, it ain't bad. It's it's not a perfect list. Um, there might be some details we'd fudge one way or another, uh, but it's, it's a pretty good list. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I, I, I grew up in a, in a similar background, no creeds. Uh, you know, the, I think going to an Episcopalian school, obviously they were creedal. But one of the impressions that you get from that is, oh, my gosh, people say this creed, you know, they just repeat it, but they don't mean it. And therefore, they don't believe it. That's, I think, one of the knocks yeah. against creeds is it's just rote. You memorize it, you say it, you don't believe it, or it doesn't have an impact on you. But that and and, and well, I think that's true. One of the valuable things about a creed, and it, and if we called it a mission statement, people would get a lot more excited about it. Uh, you know that
1: wednesday night i said if it just said about us on our website right. it would be fine but when it yes. says freed we get kind of twitchy you
0: know? yeah all of a sudden no no creeds yeah. but yeah. you know one of the things i have grown to appreciate about the creeds especially like you said the early creeds as opposed mm-hmm. to some of the ones that came later and some of the ones that are developed you know in the last 150 years is that the intention of these creeds was not to be a replacement for the Bible or a replacement for studying theology. Instead, these creeds are a shorthand to give a handle to either illiterate or uneducated mass of people to know what are the basics of our faith. And as you mentioned, now we live in a culture where uh, we're, we are suspicious of things like creeds because we think we know uh, the truth about the story of the Bible or theology or whatever it is. And in a lot of ways, what that ends up doing is jading us against things like creeds, uh, doctrinal statements, and things like that, because they sound very stodgy or they sound very uh, rote or rigid. And we're like, well, my faith is not rigid. Uh, so I actually believe in a relationship over rules, and that's one of the things you bring up in the chapters in this book. Is yes, this is about a relationship, and like any good relationship. Uh, our relationship with Christ, and especially what we learn about him through the Bible, has almost like certain guideposts in it. And uh, that's really what the creed does. And so in a lot of ways, what you've done with this book is you've used the creed for its original purpose, not the purpose sometimes we attribute to it by saying, hey, I'm going to lay this creed down like a framework, and I'm going to use each of these guideposts to dive into something in the gospel of John. Yeah. And uh, it works really well as a way to remember what you've read. I think it's counterintuitive because it doesn't go straight through the book, you know. Yeah. But it's it's a way to build our knowledge and to saturate it in Scripture, and so I think that accomplishes both goals really.
1: Yeah, as as a book on John, uh, it's probably leaves something to be desired because it's not you know in in text order. I'm leaving out big chunks. Obviously, it's not going to cover all the chapters. Um, it's selective, but I think in giving a sense of how this relates to the the overall sense of a Christian worldview and what we believe, I'm hoping that that is what's what's accomplished, that at the end of it, you could say, I, I have a better picture now of what Christians believe and how that actually relates to this story John told about Jesus.
0: Were there any points in doing this? because I think you know if the idea comes to you that this will work, this is a good way to lay this out. Were there any points where you got to a part of the creed and you're like, I don't know if I can find a good passage in John to yes. write this chapter about?
1: <laughs> as soon as I got to born of the Virgin Mary, I thought, oh, man, I got the gospel with no <laughs> narrative of the birth in it. What am I going to do? Yeah. about Mary? Um, but I was, uh, there's a, a book, I'm not even going to say it's a great book, but it was, there's a book by Capon, C-A-P-O-N on parables where he makes a point that stuck with me. It's from the early chapter. He makes a point about how John's gospel always, if if there's a subject in the synoptics, it always comes up in John's gospel. It just comes up in an unexpected way. Hmm. And that if you look long enough, there's nothing in the synoptics that doesn't theologically reappear in some new guise in John's gospel. Wow. And I, I think that's probably true. You, you, you can, be, it can be dangerous where you're like trying to force a synoptic idea into John. That's not good. Yeah. But uh, in general, I think it's true. And so thinking about Mary, I thought, okay, well, I don't get a birth merit narrative. I do get the doctrine of the incarnation, maybe mm-hmm. more so than anywhere else. And I do actually get two different Mary-related scenes in John, both being the mother of our Lord. You know, that's right. the role she yeah. plays. Uh, and that's significant. So I, I found time to talk about that instead, which was actually kind of fun. One of one of my favorite sections, it turns out, was the one I yeah. almost gave up on. Well, in a section with- that I
0: don't know that people, I don't know that commentators draw it out the same way, because they're not thinking about that context of born of the Virgin Mary. You know, a lot of times we, we they treat if you read a commentary on John, they treat the incarnation section theologically and textually. So at the beginning of the gospel, you have this introduction, rich, theologically profound. Then you get to the wedding feast at Cana and uh, you had a great you had a great line in there. There were there were several parts of this book where I laughed out loud. Uh, at something that you had written. People often laugh at my
1: theology. So that's- Because be- it
0: was intentionally funny, which <laughs> you don't always get in a in a Bible study like this, but you said, you know, it's not often that you see a wedding invitation that says Jesus plus 12 yeah. on it. Uh, it yeah. <laughs> so Jesus and his disciples are at this wedding. And a lot of times the commentators treat it as, you know, it's Jesus' first miracle, which is true. It is. Yeah. His first miraculous act has to do with cleansing, has to do with the new- vessels and uh the resurrected life but it's easy to skip over the fact that that the second main character of that narrative is jesus mother and the role that she plays and uh, i i just thought that was that was probably one of those things that actually because you're coming at it from a little bit different direction you see something new in the text that you probably hadn't seen if you're just reading it straight through john you know one through four at that point um, what else did you learn as you were writing and researching for the book that maybe you hadn't seen in John before?
1: Uh, ascension language. In the same way that you don't get a birth narrative, you don't get an ascension, which is not a shock. The ascension as such is not in really any of the Gospels. Luke just adds it to Acts. So it's kind of a continuation from Luke would be the most natural segue to the doctrine of the ascension. But Matthew, Mark, John all kind of just leave you with the last conversation. Amen. Um, right. but the idea of ascension actually plays a pretty big role in John's gospel. Cause Jesus is always talking about, I was sent and I'm going back. I was sent and I'm going back. There's lots of that going back language, um, in John. Um, and then even the narrator in John three, or, or at least a phrase that I take to be the narrator in John three, where he says, uh, who, who descended from heaven, except he that ascended, you know, and then right. there's that reference there as someone who would have been a witness of the Ascension too. So there's little, little tidbits that was interesting to find. Um, I had not really tried to, I never sat down and tried to think about the doctrine of the Ascension from the, the gospels. I always just turn to Acts one and start talking about it. And it was, it was yeah. interesting, especially in John.
0: Well, and you know that's that's a, a term and a branch of theology that you don't think a lot about until you get to seminary and then you find out oh my gosh this is really really important you know the, you the think, early
1: church put a premium on the ascension like yeah if absolutely he's king, then that's where he is and that matters and it's a big deal
0: yeah I've been writing a chapter uh, on Philippians right now and you know in the Christ hymn in Philippians. There's mm. the same movement that you see through the gospel of John. And this is just really yes. an important uh, kind of like a little biblical shorthand to look for is you have descension into death, and then you have resurrection, which is ascension. But the resurrection itself isn't the full picture of the ascension. It's almost yep. like if you think about things framed as incarnation, so preexistent son, incarnation, death and burial, resurrection, you only get about halfway back up the dissension and ascension curve. You have to have that. And he is seated at the right hand of the father. He's glorified above every name. He is the King of Kings. You know, we, we sometimes think about that as being reserved for revelation. And of course, we could go round and round on this because I think most of what Revelation describes about that has already happened. But uh, you know, he is he is enthroned. Hebrews says, and yeah. he is above uh, the heavens and the earth in terms of his rulership. He is reigning yeah. currently, and uh, John gives us that same movement throughout the entire gospel. You know, he's lifted up so that all men will be drawn to him, but he's actually in that moment descending. And then uh, he does draw people to himself. And and when he talks to Pilate, he, his kingdom is not of this world. He's not reigning now. He's being trampled on. And then he will reign. And so you see this up and down movement through the whole gospel. And your book really brought that out, I think, uh, as, a, as a focal point.
1: Well, that, that was the goal, because I, I think that's what's supposed to happen with it, that without ever telling the story, John gives you the sense of that's that's the movement of the story, that's the movement of the whole meta narrative of Scripture, is you know, creation, fall, redemption, like that whole story is a, a down and then up again motion, which yeah. uh, I think you and I have talked about. the The worldview of modernism, uh, especially secular modernism, is the reverse that humanity is getting better and better and better and better and better and eventually will peak in utopia. And then eventually the universe burns out and we all go back to chaos and thermodynamics that like in, in the non theistic worldview, you get as good as it gets and comes back down. And, uh, in the theistic worldview, we're actually closer to the bottom right now. We're on our way up to, to something uh-huh. better in Christ.
0: Yeah. That's one of the things I've learned from you. And, and I love that that's part of our conversation we had in that series we did on theistic evolution. And if oh, yeah. you go back and listen to that, the two podcasts we did on that, the first one is about the biological and scientific things that we we're discussing about evolution, and then the second one is about the philosophical uh, portions of the scientific worldview and assumptions you need to make for the scientific method. And in that in that book that we we're reviewing, uh, Theistic Evolution, there's an essay on C.S. Lewis and uh, mm-hmm. worldview. And one of my favorite moments we've ever done on the podcast is that you know five minute stretch where you trampoline <laughs> off of that and talk about just the beautiful movement of history and how incompatible that is with a materialistic and a, a scientistic kind of understanding of of the way that we've been made.
1: Yeah, I, I credit C.S. Lewis with that. He, in his own weird way, you know, he saw it like in yeats and wagner and like he's referencing poetry and stuff and i'm like wow yeah. you're you're getting it from all kinds of places but i, I see it more in, in the sciences yeah
0: yeah absolutely that's going that's going on my mount rushmore of greatest podcast moments <laughs> so far for the Soy speak podcast but <laughs> you know, a great place to someone be someone who really really gives you an image of that movement and yeah, sure. i think you capture it by doing it this way Speaking of that same thing, one of my favorite uh, kind of applicational pieces of the book is, is in the chapter on crucified and buried. And this is in when you're covering chapters 18 and 19. And mm-hmm. the opening paragraph is I just I highlighted this, underlined it, put a star by <laughs> it because I thought this is this is really, really insightful. Thus far in John's gospel, Jesus seems to be a very likable fellow. There's a great temptation in telling the story of Jesus to leave him there as a as a polite moral teacher from years gone by. A lot of Christian preaching does just that, proclaiming the almost gospel of almost Jesus, the pleasant neighbor you might want to have over dessert. But the traditional symbol of Christianity is a cross, not a cup of coffee. Near the end of the story, someone dies. And for many half-hearted believers and casual readers, this remains a mystery. Mm-hmm. That is a really good opening paragraph. And I think mm-hmm. it's able to capture something in the text because and I want you to expand on this here in a minute, the, the text itself does preserve some of that mystery of the death of Christ in a unique way. You don't see the same. John doesn't tell the story the same way that the synoptic writers right. do, because he's doing something different with the death. But then too, I feel like that, that was such a great applicational piece to me. It's like, we spent a lot of time trying to, you know, basically do PR for Jesus and try to make him into this really great person or, you know, we feel the pressure from society to only talk about the parts of Jesus that they already agree with. And, uh, you know, the thing that you point out here is, well, when you read the gospels, don't forget at the end, they kill him. You know, there has to be a death. Credit,
1: uh, our mutual friend, mentor, and professor, Dr. Baird. I remember him saying that in a class somewhere and it's stuck with me ever since, you know, they kill him at the end. (laughs) Like no matter what I do, when I read the text, it's like, oh yeah, they killed this guy. What what am I supposed to see here that I'm not? I think, make big broad strokes here, but in um, Christendom today, um, especially Protestant Christendom, that you have one branch of the church that really wants to emphasize the death of Christ and the doctrine of the atonement and tends to ignore the humanity and care and compassion of Christ in his life. You have another branch that only wants to talk about Jesus humanitarian and never actually gets to the part where he gets murdered for something he did and said that was considered threatening to the world as it was. That there's both a continuity and a discontinuity that Jesus is with us. Also condemning us apparently. I mean, he's on your side, but he's your judge. And, And that is how you get to the cross that somehow Um, this very nice person that you'd love to be your neighbor, it warrants murder from Mm -hmm. religious people. Right. People who, in the grand worldview of Romans versus uh, Jews, you'd say, I I feel more in common with the Jewish folk than I do the pagans. Um, And yet uh, they seem to agree that Jesus needs to die. If anything, Pilate is the more hesitant of the two groups. Right, right what happened there that motivated religious people to violence um towards christ there's something about him that provoked that and uh, anytime you see someone who looks like you doing something you know you would be ashamed of doing it's worth asking you know what what happened there Uh, right I think that in, in the politics of our mo- current moment in in the world, I asked that question. And then looking at the crucifixion, you know, what did they see in Jesus that made them so mad they wanted to kill him? Right. And I have made the same decision. Sure. And you you got to look at Jesus with that. If, if he is always palatable to you, if he never corrects you and never condemns you, um, you haven't met him yet. Because at the end, we, we try to kill him and we succeed.
0: And that's one of the things that's so unique about the Gospel of John is the amount of difficult things and honestly ab- abrasive things that Jesus yeah. says in the Gospel of John. I mean, you know, telling people that they are the children of their father, the devil, uh, you yeah, know. that's a winner. Telling people that they only care about him because he fed them, you know, the bread and the loaves a couple of days ago. But their <laughs> their hearts are actually far from Say dead. that at I mean, your
1: next uh, church potluck. Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he um, says some things that are really striking in John's gospel.
1: And John 6, is it is it John 6 with the uh, eating, eat my body bit? Uh, and the disciples yeah. are like, we're, we're supposed to be your followers. And we have no idea what that was about.
0: Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, there's several times where John, you know, talks about it. You do see this in the synoptics too, where John will say, this was a hard saying, many people departed. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. He's, he's a really bad Messiah. If if you're mm-hmm. thinking of like building a movement and being a good PR guy, he's just, he's bad at yeah. it. He keeps telling them things they don't want to hear. Yes. Um,
0: yeah. You know, one of the things about John's gospel that I, I've always loved is he has this ability to write in such a way that is really deep on the one hand. I and mean, when we can talk about passages like, you know, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and the image of light that runs through the gospel of John, or, you know, the, the prayer that Jesus prays in chapter 17 his dialogue with Pilate. I mean, these are the places that people camp out theologically and philosophically. And yet I think it occurs to you. I think everybody, when they first learn Greek, uh, the first thing you ever read in Greek is John, because it's the simplest Greek in the Bible. And he just has this great way with words where he can say things that are very simple syntactically, but very deep theologically. Uh, And so I I wanted to know, as you're writing this, how do you ever stop on something like the Gospel of John? I mean, how how do you, you know, move from chapter to chapter to chapter, instead of just getting lost in a deeper and deeper and deeper pool of ideas?
1: It helps when you have a deadline for yourself, and you want to use this in your spring semester. Uh, (laughs) I have to move on. But yeah, I mean, (laughs) How how easy, I mean, how easy would it be, Cole, to sit down and and write this same book and never leave chapter one? Yeah. Um, it would be easy to do this coming Sunday. I'm gonna talk a little bit about missions in my sermon. And I'm gonna end up back in John one, talking about um Nathaniel and and coming to see Jesus and people that encountered Jesus and the significance of drawing people to Jesus. Um or that he really draws them to himself. We just kind of have to get out of the way most of the time. Right. But like that. Every page of John is packed. And um, I think it's important to know, at least this is what I told myself when I stopped typing, is that Christianity has been around for 2,000 years and people have said a lot of things. And I'm neither going to say anything really new or say it all. And there's going to be books about John written when I'm done and probably much better ones. So it's just like, did I accomplish something here with this? Did I say what, what would accomplish my point today? And then you kind of move on. Um, Had a professor that we both had actually that liked to say preaching is um, a lot about what you leave out, not what you put Mm in. Yeah. It's, it's trying to get just the significant enough point across without Snowing people over with material.
0: Yeah, I love the way you end the book. Uh, there's a chapter at the end that's kind of a, a summation of the book, and you know one of the things that you point out is after the the story after Jesus dies, the disciples go back fishing, and mm. uh, one of the things that you said in 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 the chapter on Amen is the nets might've been empty, but at least the routine was comforting back to normal. Except there is no normal after meeting Jesus. Even as they tried to find a new normal, Jesus re-entered their lives. And that really was profound to me because I, I love the story of the disciples going back and meeting Jesus again the resurrected Lord comes back into their lives. But it also gave me uh, a lot of hope for the ways that this book and the way that the, the, the gospel of John is used for either new converts, people that have just become Christians, or people that have felt far away from Christ and are re-encountering Jesus again. That's, that's something, uh, as I was reading, that challenged me to think about those people and to think about the moments in my own life where I want to just go back to normal get out of the things that maybe God's calling me to do that are difficult or uh, the things that I know that are right, that I, in my flesh, I don't want to do. That was a really powerful way to end the book.
1: That chapter, uh, I've been thinking a lot about normal again, in a year where nothing was normal um, and how there's this anxiousness. I mean, how many people, and how many times have you yourself said in the last year, I can't wait to get back to normal totally and maybe yeah. normal maybe normal wasn't any good anyway maybe there's something right. better available that there's a door open uh, it seems like exactly the way god would do things so maybe maybe that's how it works but we're more comfortable with empty nets that we're used to than something meaningful that we're not when you read that last chapter of john i think most of us are kind of incredulous You know, how could you see the resurrected Christ and then go back to fishing? But you have to remind yourself that we do it every Monday morning. I mean, every one of us, we're on that mountain peak high if we go to church on Sunday. And then as quick as we can, we go back to our grind and uh, we try to forget. And we try to put it aside because there's comfort in the routine uh, that lulls us to sleep. And it's a danger we all face. Definitely the new convert. If anything, they're better at it than we are. That you know that fiery new convert that can't shut up about Jesus compared to the rest yeah. of us that have found a way to put that on the back burner. Right.
0: Yeah, that what a what a great way to end the 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 book with a little bit of a challenge um to think about. You know, you go over amen means it is true. Uh we know his testimony is true, and that's the way that John. Finishes the gospel is these things have been written so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ and have life in him. And the last line of the book is, What will you do now? Uh, You know, how do you respond to this? And I love, you know, I think a lot of people will use this for small groups, Bible studies. I know a lot of the people that I know that have a copy at this point have been doing it in their quiet times in the mornings. And throughout the book, there's just a great call to action not just to read and learn about John's gospel, but to really put it into practice. And uh, w- what do you hope that people will do with the book? I know you wrote it having in mind that you would teach through it, that you would do small group stuff with it. it. has great questions if you want to do it in a group of people at the end of each chapter. But what what's kind of your hope for the impact that the book will make?
1: I hope it encapsulates the Christian faith in a way that you felt like you could share it if you wanted to. That was one goal that you could hand this to a old believer, a new believer, or an unbeliever, and accomplish some of the same results. So that that was one goal to be at, written at that level and to access the faith, faith at that level. Um, also, I, I tend to think we forget that that's what the Gospels do. Um, and I'm not, be clear, I'm not comparing what I've written to the gospel of John, but the gospel of John was written with the same intent in mind, like Mm -hmm. it's history, but it's not of the historical genre. He's not trying to write something so that you know what Julius Caesar did. He's writing something and then saying, now what? You know, it's like, it's Mm -hmm. shouting at you, this is true. What are you going to do about it? but these are all provocative, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all provocative documents, history written with an agenda, an open agenda. Like sometimes history is written with a hidden agenda. Like this is an yes. open agenda. This is an invasion of the truth of Jesus Christ into your world. Do something. Right. Uh, they're all written that way. And we kind of need to remember that that's, it's not just facts we want to memorize that it was all written with that point of view. And I, I mm. hope, this kind of refreshes the text, or at least maybe our appreciation that this is what the text did. This isn't something I found in it. This is what the text has always been doing.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I look forward to with the book is uh, kicking off a new season or a new vista for So We Speak. And oh. it was just such a joy to get to publish this book as the first book that we've published and to look forward to many more. Uh, uh, books that we get to publish. And so I wanted to go back a little bit to tell the story of how the book came to be associated with So We Speak, but then also looking ahead to what we have planned in the future, because I, I really do think this is a new, a new chapter for So We Speak to open uh, in yeah. terms of publishing. And certainly we want to continue doing all the other things that we do as well. But th- this is something where I think we really can equip people with great resources. And there's a lot of good Christian books out there but where we can equip people with great resources to study, to uh, share with their friends, to do small groups with, to invite people to do Bible studies with. And so, um, you know, I, our friendship goes back a long time, all the way to seminary, and we passed around different ideas and things. And, you know, one of the things is, this is not your first book uh, that you've written. You, you've actually written several books, one of which I think why We Stayed is a different kind of book, but one I'd I'd love for you to go into as kind of a foray into writing a book.
1: Yeah, uh, so that was a little project uh, written for my own people and tribe uh, in Churches of Christ that we um, edited a collection of essays on why, you know, it's always easy to to know your own people well enough to find their faults like, no one can tell you what's wrong with a Baptist better than a Baptist can. <laughs> yeah. And no one can tell you what's wrong with a Church of Christ better than a Church of Christ kid could. Um, and yet, here I am. I'm, I'm I'm in Churches of Christ, and the authors of those chapters were in Churches of Christ. And I said, you know, tell me tell me what it is that you find good and beautiful about the Churches of Christ. Um, yeah, we've got warts. Of course we do, because um, there be sinners here. But why is it that you stayed and we got these chapters yeah. and they're a little eclectic. Um, we don't all agree on even some of the same reasons, you know? Um, and yet it was just interesting to read kind of a perspective, set of perspectives of, of what is good and true and fair and hopeful about our particular group of churches. Um, it's, you and I have had this conversation lately. It's always easy and always popular to write critical pieces about the Christian faith and Christian people and Christian churches. Um, it actually takes a little more courage and thoughtfulness to be able to say here are some things that are unequivocally good about mm-hmm. what we're doing and we could offer that as hopeful. Um, so that's that's what that little book was about and um, I like You know, my favorite authors are guys like C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller and G.K. Chesterton, people who present the faith in a way that's not compromised to the culture, but engages the culture and says, here is something worth knowing about Christianity. You might not have thought of this way before. And if you thought of it this way, you might want to be one because this makes sense. Um, It's my approach to apologetics and evangelism and, and church work. So... I think probably the direction a lot of my books will take in the future, which God grants me time and energy and resources I'll continue to write, will be of, of that genre of let me help you understand something about the Christian faith in a way that you might not have seen before, uh, that's true to the text, and that uh, helps in a positive way.
0: Yeah, and that's, that's one of the reasons I really wanted uh, so we speak to publish this book is because I think that's the exact spirit that you bring to the basics of the faith. It is, I, I think, when we were texting about it originally, it's it's this great mix. I mean, I told you, th- this really is like if C.S. Lewis had decided to write com- biblical commentary, which I don't know if he ever did, <laughs> but uh, you know, it has that same r- depth to it with a very whimsical writing style. Yeah. It's very intriguing and. Like I said, there's a lot of parts that are really actually pretty funny that you don't expect there, in, a, in a book about the Gospel John. There are some Gospel things John.
1: you can only learn while laughing. Uh, it's just uh, you're, you're supposed to get there that way, and yeah. Lewis got that. So did Tolkien and some other guys. That yeah, uh, you're supposed it's to chuckle Chesterton. a bit. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. That guy cracks me up. Yeah. So you know that
0: that that's the spirit of the kind of things that we want to write. We are really trying yeah. to equip Christians to think Christianly. We're also trying to engage people with the faith and with the text of the Bible in a way that forms worldview. And this is one of the ways that you do it, by capturing the imagination, by pushing people into dialogue with other people and talking about what the Bible says and what they believe. And then also giving new angles, like you said, just presenting it in a way that maybe you didn't think about before uh, that, that I think really captures the goals that we have at So We Speak. And so this is really the perfect first book to do that with.
1: I've got a rough outline, uh, that I'll share with you for this, the premier information right here, sharing with Cole and the audience at the same time, but I've got a rough outline of a similar book for small groups on the doctrine of the atonement, which would take about, it, it would take maybe 12 or 13, uh, Historical pictures of what Christians have said about the atonement, and one of the Gospels. Uh-huh. I've been leaning towards Mark, but I, yeah. I could talk myself out of it. That and would be say, one. you know each each of those pictures from from Augustine to Abelard to uh, Rene Girard, each of them you know has something that touched on something in the Bible. Now, any one of those pictures by themselves is actually incomplete. Uh, Sure. You and I are reading Rene Girard's book and it's, it's incomplete. Like if that was all you knew about the gospel, you'd just be wrong. Yeah. But each of them like captures some little snippet of, Oh yeah, that is what Jesus did. That is something that's accomplished. And the gospel text actually hints at those metaphors. Um, And I thought it would be a way to, rather than try to have a battle about which theory of atonement is the definitive one to say, here are these pictures that Christians have used for centuries Augustine liked the idea of Jesus as a great physician. You know, he was, the cross was a healing act. Um, We probably don't preach about that very much. Uh, It it had a moment and and then we don't talk about it much anymore. Um, And it might help people to understand what Christians are trying to say about the cross of Christ to give this, this robust picture of what Jesus did is more than any one image could capture And so the Gospels use tons of them to try to get you the sense of this cosmic accomplishment in Christ. So I think that would be fun. Um, I've also been thinking about something on, I mentioned to you the other day about writing something about worldview, specifically for college students and having the kind of conversations um, that really are happening on college campuses. That's where these battles are being fought daily for the minds and hearts of people. Um, that will then cement in place for years to come. And I'd love to have some, something written with that in mind too.
0: Yeah, well, I, I think both of those ideas would be great and two projects I could get pretty excited about. I think, especially as campus culture has spilled over into the rest of the world, I think everybody's realizing yep. just how important college ministry is. And uh, having done college ministry and you having done college ministry, uh, it's one of the most exciting things you could ever do. But it is very difficult and uh, a lot, like you said, a lot of the battles of the future are being waged in dorm rooms with 19 and 20 year olds right now, forming what it is that they believe and what they hope in and what they trust in and the kind of people that they're going to be. And uh, I think it's one of the most important mission fields in the world is college campuses in the towns where we live and college students that Mm -hmm. we know are kids, grandkids, uh, who are going off to college, and uh, that—that's something I'm really passionate about. And of course, the atonement's mildly important too. Uh, so that, that be, that could be a fun, you know, be a fun project.
1: Yeah. I, my my reservation is I'm not sure I'm even remotely qualified to write on the atonement. It's such a big area of things I'd want to read before before I even try a C.S. Lewis level summary. Uh, I, yeah. I'm nervous that I'd misrepresent so much because there's just been. I mean, you talk about subjects that have had a lot written about it. Uh, yes, that's pretty much the one. But yeah, it, it might be a, a fun study to do.
0: Yeah, oh, I think it'd be great. I would love to read what you write about that. It's uh, it's a topic that is perennial and one that is multifaceted, like you're talking about. There's a lot of different images uh, in the New Testament. Yeah. I think there's a reason for that. You know, uh, th- this is all live. I love this. This is we haven't even talked about this before, but I've just published an essay in uh, covenant seminary's journal called presbyterian and the essay is on comparing models of the atonement and uh, one of the things i was talking about in there is you know if you have all these images of the atonement you can take one of two uh, approaches and, and both of these are good approaches uh, the first one being let's figure out which one's the right one mm-hmm. and you see a lot of theologians analytic philosophers doing that trying to say what makes an actual atonement. And, and that's a good conversation to have because a lot of times we think about things as atonements. They don't have an atoning mechanism. Um, yeah. you know, but then the second thing that we can do is we can say, okay, why is it that of all the doctrines, so if you think about you know the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, yeah. you think about the Trinity and divine attributes, almost all these are pretty nailed down in the creeds except the atonement. There is no standard atonement by which, you know, at the at the Council of Chalcedon or something, they put down and said, no, we are Christus Victor people, or we are penal substitutionary atonement people, and that's it for all yeah. of history. It's, it's kind of the one elusive doctrine that hasn't been nailed down with the same uh, rigidity as some of the others, and I think there's a reason for that, a biblical reason, and that is because the Bible presents several different operative metaphors for what's going on at the atonement. And so we need to bring a little bit of both. We need to be able to be analytical about it and say, okay, this is actually not an atonement or this is not a full (laughs) treatment of what happened at the cross. And then we also need to say, well, why is it that John wants this to talk about this? Like it's a trial. And why is it that, you know, Hebrews wants to talk about sacrifices and connect that to the old Testament system and, you know, why, why do uh, Mark and Luke want to talk about this differently when Jesus dies on the cross and you know, the lamb selection motif and all of that stuff. It's, it's like, well, I think because all of these things are supposed to tell us something about the atonement. And uh, so this could be a fun project to work on.
1: Yeah. I, and I think that's, I'm, I'm an all of the above guy. I mean, if it's, if it has a biblical precedent, no, we, there's enough there to not make up any new ones by all means, but if it has biblical precedent, then it's probably a helpful metaphor if there are some places where the Bible gives you some clear definitive answer. The Lord is one, the end, right? Full stop. Right. There's one God. Okay. So I don't need variety of explanation there, but when it gives you variety of metaphor and says, well, it's kind of like this, then you should say yes to all of those and and find how they reflect the mission of God in the world in Christ and therefore connect to our mission that if if the mission of Christ is in some way represented or instantiated in the church, then every picture of atonement has some at least tangential connection to what we're doing as God's people. And so leaving one out would be kind of like leaving out part of what we're supposed to be doing here, which is why um, your theory of atonement is going to so drastically shape your church's mission. If you're you know, entirely penal substitution, and that's all you talk about, then you're going to talk about um, a salvific encounter with God and in, in that way, you know, very specifically, um, if you're all about Christus victor, and you're going to talk about going out and fighting evil in the world, and that's all you'll ever talk about, um, and so on and so forth.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, this is exciting stuff, and it, it kind of leads me to the point that I wanted to conclude here with, and that is that uh, – we have several things in the works this upcoming year for 2021 uh many of them we just we just learned about right now but we have, we have a couple of projects we want to publish more <laughs> yeah. books uh, and, and continue to uh equip sure. believers to think about these things and, and like you just yeah. said with the atomic, it's not because we want to make sure that uh, we can have the most erudite conversation about the theology it's because it makes <laughs> yeah. a big difference in the way that we follow Christ in our lives, in the way that we talk to our neighbors and friends about the gospel, and in the way that we fulfill the calling that God has had for us. And so then I I think one of my favorite things about this book is that that's what it helps us to do, is it helps us to have conversations with friends about our Savior. And it helps us to have conversations about what God's doing in our life. And so uh, thanks again for writing this. I'm so excited for people to get a copy of this. Uh, it's available on Amazon, and you can get on and get it. We uh, have been giving some of these away, uh, and, and maybe we can link to it on the podcast show notes and everything. We want everybody to have a copy of this book. So go out, buy the book, The Faith of John's Gospel by Ben Williams, and uh, more to come. And I'm excited about that.